Issues Etc. is listener-supported. That means we rely on you for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Hi, this is Todd Wilkin. Please consider making a tax-deductible gift to Issues Etc. today. You can donate online, issuesetc.org, or by check. Make your check payable to Lutheran Public Radio and send it to LPR, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Thanks for your support. I consider Jesus coming from a peasant village, like Nazareth, to be a peasant. And I think the Kingdom of God movement begins as a movement of peasant resistance to Roman injustice in the name of the justice of God. That's John Dominic Croissant of the Jesus Seminar. He has some strange theories about Jesus. He likes to to, uh, try and locate Jesus as a man of his times. Now, in and of itself, there's really nothing wrong with that because Jesus was, in his incarnation, certainly a man of his times. He spoke the language of his day. He understood the thought of his day. He certainly was uh, constantly interacting with the various schools of thought within first century Palestinian Judaism. There's no doubt about that. He understood the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the other parties that made up these schools of thought. But can Jesus be... Can he be categorized that way? Some have said he was a Pharisee. Some have said he was an Essene, another school of thought common there during those days. Or have tried to, as John Dominic Crisson does, tried to categorize Jesus in terms of Greco-Roman thought. Maybe he was some kind of a philosopher or followed some school of philosophy. It's part two of our three-part weekly series on how modern Bible scholars distort the Gospels today, the world in which Jesus lived, the world of thought in which he lived. Dr. Craig Evans joins us. He's professor of New Testament at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, and he's author of several books, including Fabricating Jesus. Dr. Evans, welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be back with you, Todd. This isn't the first time. I mean, John Dominic Crossan and his his compatriots aren't the first to try to... uh, pigeonhole Jesus into one of the schools of thought common in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Can Jesus be categorized that way? I don't think so. Uh, Of course, a long time ago, Jesus' critics accused him of black magic, uh, being a false prophet, being a magician, perhaps in league with the devil himself. Uh, Some thought maybe he was a rebel. The Romans looked at him as an insurrectionist or something like that. And yet none of these ideas truly, not one, squares with his teaching or his own behavior and what he taught his disciples to do. And now today we get some oddball theories, too. Uh, The idea that Jesus uh, was a peasant philosopher of some sort or a cynic, I mean, there's just a tiny grain of truth to that. I mean, Jesus was not an urbanite, not a city dweller. He was rural. But the idea that he was a peasant uh, who could not read, which is what John Dominic Crossan goes on to say, uh, who was not familiar with Israel's great uh, literature, Israel's scriptures, didn't have much interest in them, didn't see himself as Israel's Messiah, did not see God redeeming and restoring Israel someday in the future, I think those ideas are way off base. They don't reflect uh, our better sources, and that's what we talked about last week the better sources, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so I think Professor Crossan uh, gets off the track by paying too much attention to some of these other sources. He also draws some questionable parallels between Jesus and uh, the archaeology of the 1970s and 80s, 
near Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And those are things we can talk about, and I think it would be important to set the record straight. Okay, let's talk about that particular thing. You deal with it uh, in some depth in, in your book, Fabricating Jesus. What has Crossan and, and other scholars, what have they done with those archaeological finds near Jesus' hometown, um, or I guess we should say his alleged hometown, um, in order to make a connection between him and the cynics? Well, yeah, that's, it's a very interesting area of study. Uh, a lot of archaeology has been going on for 30 and more years at a place called Sepphoris. Sepphoris is uh, just four miles from Nazareth. It's on a hill. Uh, it was a fairly significant city in Jesus' youth and during his time of ministry. And so because of a lot of building activity that went on uh, at, in the first two or three decades of the first century, and because uh, Joseph uh, was Jesus' uh, recognized father, was a builder or a carpenter, it's assumed that Jesus and Joseph uh, visited Sepphoris and was involved in projects. Well, now archaeologists have uncovered that city, especially in the 70s and 80s, and were very impressed by how Greco-Roman it looks. And so we have paved streets, we have columns, we have impressive buildings, we find mosaics uh, depicting mythological Greek and, and uh, Roman mythological scenes. And so uh, scholars, some scholars, like Crossan, jump to the conclusion that, wow, Jesus grew up under the shadow of a highly Greco-Roman city where Greek was spoken. And if Greek was spoken, probably Greek philosophers were there too, maybe even cynic philosophers influencing Jewish boys from nearby villages like Jesus. And so went the reasoning. The problem is, though, is that archaeology continued on into the 90s and right up to the present, and we're in a position now that we can date what we find, and we have discovered that the Sepphoris of Jesus' day, that is before the year 70, was very Jewish. There's no evidence whatsoever of a Gentile presence or Gentile philosophic influence in that city. And so the Sepphoris of Professor Crossan is really the Sepphoris of the second and third centuries, many, many generations after the time of Jesus and his own public ministry. What's the impulse here to try and connect these dots that, I mean, it is conjecture at best, and then you have to kind of rewrite the entire narrative of Jesus to explain how this harmless, illiterate um, dabbler in the school of philosophical thought known as cynicism uh, ends up on a cross at the wrong end of Roman justice. (laughs) Well, of course, a lot of uh, people, uh, some of them probably were peasants, a lot of people did uh, raise their voices against Rome, and, and uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us about some Jewish figures who did that very thing. So to uh, criticize the establishment, the status quo, to suggest that the poor and the don- downtrodden are going to be exalted at the expense of the wealthy and the oppressive, that would strike fear and, and worry uh, in the hearts of their of their overlords and masters, and that would include the Jewish ruling priests too, who they had it you know in their interest to keep things the way it was, and so to run afoul of the authority and find yourself crucified is not hard to imagine, and that's no doubt what Jesus warns his own disciples when he says, "Look, if you're going to follow after me, you better be prepared to take up your cross." 
because uh, criticizing the establishment is not healthy. That's a good way to, to be uh, severely persecuted, imprisoned, possibly even put to death. So in that sense, Crossan, uh, you know, is moving in the right direction. But I think what, what enters in is the fascination that some academics have in the second half of the 20th century with the Che Guevara's, the peasant revolutionaries, the Marxists who are out and about in the jungles and so on, fighting against oppressive regimes. And, uh, and of course, I don't mean to be overly personal with uh, Crossan. He's somebody I know and I like him. He is Irish. And sometimes you get that, hey, we poor Irish guys are up against the great British Empire. You, it's just that's that's where a lot of scholars are coming from overgrown hippies talking about you know the revolution of the people and it, some of these ideas some of this ideology of the 1960s uh, gets read back into uh historical work that historians do and Jesus scholars gets read back into the first century, and we imagine that Jesus basically is a hippie. He would have been a friend of Fidel Castro, etc. And I think that is an element that that's what makes it attractive for the ivory tower scholarly community to imagine that kind of thing. So, um, in order to um, rightly orient Jesus as a historical figure in his world, how would you categorize him? I mean, how does history look at him then rightly as a, th- a thinker and as uh, obviously the significant figure he is, apart from the fact that he is, of course, the savior of the world? Well, you have to look at all the sources. You have to look at everything that's written down, and you have to dig up and analyze everything that's part of that world. And I know that's, that's a tall order, but a lot of that has been done. And so what we discover is Jesus grew up in a world that was very Jewish, a world that took the scriptures very seriously, a Jewish people that longed for redemption and the restoration of the Davidic uh, kingly line, that is the Messianic line, longed for a Messiah, one anointed of God who would uh, redeem and restore Israel. Those were widespread hopes. Well, Jesus answers those hopes, and you can see how people react to him. Jesus proclaims the rule of God, and of course that has disturbing implications for the status quo. He talks about the meek who are blessed instead of the powerful. He promises that the poor and the hungry will be well-fed. And so he generates a lot of hope along those lines. And so he can be evaluated by what other people say, people who believe in him and like him and are loyal to him, but also what his enemies say. And when his enemies uh, try to dismiss his miracles by saying he's in league with Satan, that's very suggestive. That suggests that he really is doing miracles. His opponents, in other words, don't say, what are you talking about? He didn't do anything. They recognize that he does do extraordinary things, and so they try to explain them away. Even Josephus, the Jewish historian, knows Jesus has a reputation of being a great teacher and a powerful wonder worker. So you evaluate what people who say about him, people who like him, people who don't like him. We dig up everything we can find. And what we find is that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first century Gospels, uh, give us a portrait that is consistent with archaeology, consistent with everything we know about Jesus' world and what, and what Jesus said and how it would re, you know, elicit responses and that's why I think that's a good place to go to find the true Jesus.
All right. When we come back, we're going to do a little bit of that ourselves. Dr. Craig Evans is our guest. This is part two of our three-part weekly series with him on how modern scholars distort the Gospels today, the world in which Jesus lived. Dr. Craig Evans is professor of New Testament at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. He's author of several books, including Fabricating Jesus. Our call-in number, 1-877-623-MIIE, 877-623-6943. Issues Etc. is listener-supported. That means we rely on you for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Hi, this is Todd Wilkin. Please consider making a tax-deductible gift to Issues Etc. today. You can donate online, issuesetc.org, or by check. Make your check payable to Lutheran Public Radio and send it to LPR, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Thanks for your support. Here's a new way to stay connected to Issues Etc. Check out our page on Facebook. Network with fellow Issues Etc. junkies. Sign up to become a fan, and we'll send you updates on future topics and guests. You'll even find photos of in-studio guests, Todd drinking gelato, and highlights from our one-year anniversary open house. You'll discover that Todd, Jeff, and Craig really do have faces for radio on Facebook. Issues Etc. on Facebook. Another way to stay connected to Issues Etc. Facebook.com slash Issues ETC. We love our on-demand listeners. You're listening to Issues Etc. When science crosses the line... This is a special commentary from the Susan B. Anthony List, named for the suffragette who was proudly pro-life. Recently, Republican Senator Sam Brownback and Democrat Senator Mary Landrieu introduced a bill that would ban American scientists from creating embryos that are part human and part animal. Called the Human-Animal Hybrid Prohibition Act of 2009, the bill condemns the human-animal hybrids as grossly unethical. As Ken Connor of the Center for a Just Society points out, these senators rightly understand the grim implications of allowing science to triumph over moral and ethical considerations. Science alone cannot chart a moral course. It's up to human scientists to maintain human dignity. This is Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of the Susan B. Anthony List. To join us in our battle for life, visit our website at sba-list.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about how modern Bible scholars distort the Gospels and, in particular, the world in which Jesus lived. Our guest, Dr. Craig Evans. Our email address on this Thursday afternoon, September the 17th, for your questions and your comments, talkback at issuesetc.org, talkback at issuesetc.org, our Twitter address at issuesetc. And our call-in number, one 623 6943 Here's Steve calling from his car. Hi, Steve. Hey. One thing I have noticed about a lot of liberal Bible scholars is they'll make the argument, well, Jesus never talked about abortion, or he never talked about homosexuality. And it's, they're basically kind of treating it as a... And those are Greek issues. In the Jewish world, is my understanding, um, both homosexuality and abortion were considered so repugnant that it, it, it wasn't even brought up. 
Well, thank you very much, Steve. Um, is he on the trail of a good explanation for the alleged silence of Jesus on those two subjects, Dr. Evans? Yes, uh, Steve is. He's quite right, because Jesus presupposed the validity of the, you might say, the ethical code, the morality taught in the Old Testament. He didn't challenge that. And so uh, other things were debated, but the idea, you know, like the Ten Commandments and and, uh, other laws that are expressed in the Old Testament, Jesus didn't dispute that at all. He was unhappy with how they were circumvented sometimes, how they were poorly interpreted, but uh, of course he does. You know that's common ground. There wasn't any Jewish person in his day in Israel that would have uh, thought that abortion was okay or that homosexual activity was just fine. Nobody thought that in the Jewish world. Now, give us a, a basic picture, if you would, a general picture of the world of thought. Uh, locate us right there in Palestine, first century, of course, under the um, under the Roman Empire with a heavy heavy. Uh, Greek influence as well. What is the world of thought, the, uh, what would you say, the zeitgeist of Jesus' day? Well, it, as the zeitgeist was uh, di- very diverse, depending on what person you ask. I think if you bumped into some Sadducees or bumped into some ruling priests in Jerusalem, they'd say the world is just fine, as long as the Galileans behave and the rabble don't create any problem and work a little harder to pay their debts, uh, things are just fine. And uh, the Romans, their attitude would be, sure, everything is is doing just fine as long as things remain quiet and stable, as long as the tribute is collected every year. Uh, That's a tax that Rome would collect from its provinces and possessions. And so uh, that would be their view. But, of course, there were a lot of other Jewish people. Some of them were Pharisees and scribes, educated people, and a lot of people who were not well-educated, people who felt powerless, people who were peasants and farmers, people who were artisans, middle class, you name it, who wanted things to change. And they thought it was awful that uh, you know, Israel did not have its own king, and by that they did not mean Herod the Great, who really was not Jewish. They didn't mean any of his sons either. Uh, they wanted a king from the line of David who would rule uh, with justice and uh, John Dominic Crossan is correct. The concern earlier in what you uh, played for us, uh, there is a concern for justice that it would reflect the true teaching of Moses, uh, the teaching that you find in the Old Testament prophets, and that people would not be exploited and would not be oppressed, and people would be welcome in the temple. It would be a place of righteousness where prayers would be heard. And so there were those concerns. And so it it just depends on whom you ask. You'd get a different uh, different reply as to how well the world is and what needs to be changed or not changed. I had one guest suggest one time, and I thought this was uh, perhaps very plausible, that with respect to those, uh, at least the, the that school of thought called the Pharisees, uh, who are who are eventually Jesus' um, kind of main theological opponents? At least initially, these learned men of Jewish scholarship considered Jesus to be um, what a respectable scholar himself. Uh, oh, they yes. disagreed with him, but they they gave him the honorific rabbi. That's right. You're quite right on that. Uh, the fact that the Pharisees as a group, show up so often in the Gospels is because they took Jesus seriously, they respected him, and uh, they would dialogue with him. Otherwise, we wouldn't find so many encounters. Uh, And, of course, the Gospels record a lot of the criticisms because the criticisms gave Jesus an opportunity to give answer. 
And when the gospel stories were told and retold and repeated uh, down through the years, uh, you have skeptics in, in the Jewish synagogues who would say, I don't think Jesus really is the Messiah. I think he's a lawbreaker, or I think he was a powerful miracle worker because he had made a deal with the devil. And so these stories, those kinds of criticisms that have been made during Jesus' own time would could be retold to offer a rebuttal. And so I'm not surprised that the Pharisees show up a whole lot, and oftentimes in a negative way. But what's interesting is they were among the first believers, too. And the book of Acts makes that very clear, and that's a surprise. The Pharisees were, were uh, emphasized taking Scripture seriously. They also believed in the resurrection. Well, Jesus they found to be a, a powerful teacher of Scripture. He was able to argue with them very effectively, and then he was raised from the dead. And boy, that, that impressed a lot of Pharisees. And so a lot of Pharisees became believers, and some of them did create a bit of a trouble for the church because they were so legalistic in how the law was to be applied. But I think it's very interesting that many Pharisees, in fact, uh, joined the Jesus movement and became Christians. We have Nicodemus. We don't know what eventually becomes of him. We have uh, Joseph of Arimathea, if I'm not mistaken. And and we also have Paul himself, um, who a little late in time comes straight out of not only the heart of the Pharisee movement, but apparently he was among its rising stars. That's right. And in one of the uh, councils, church councils, it's the one described in the 15th chapter of Acts, uh, the whole reason the council meets is to discuss uh, to what extent must Gentile believers... Uh, obey the law of Moses and apply, you know, the teaching of the rabbis. And those are the Pharisees who are raising that question, not as outsiders or critics of the church, but as insiders, as believers who are inside the church. And so I find that a very fascinating topic. In fact, we're in the Gospel of Luke, we're actually told where Pharisees warned Jesus. And I think it was a sincere warning. They warned him to be careful in Galilee because they had heard that Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, was looking for Jesus, had taken malevolent interest in Jesus. So we tend to assume that in the Gospels the Pharisees are always bad guys or that they're always hypocrites, but I think we have to be a little, uh, a little fair, more fair there and a little more careful. I think it's, the picture uh, of the Pharisees is actually a bit complicated. Uh, it has been alleged that Jesus, because of his, uh, not only the Messianic expectation attached to him by his followers, but also of his own um, claims to that role to be, in essence, Israel's and eventually the world's Messiah, must have gotten this idea from another Messianic group outside of Jerusalem, the Essenes. Who were they, and is there any plausible connection between Jesus and this group? Well, I don't see any connection between Jesus and the, and the Essenes because they are so different in so many ways. I don't think uh, an Essene would bother to cross the street to listen to Jesus because Jesus associates with sinners. Uh, he takes time to eat meals with them. Essenes would find that appalling. I mean, Jesus is criticized for doing that by the scribes and the Pharisees, and the Essenes view the scribes and the Pharisees as very liberal and very wishy-washy. So I think the Essenes would simply ignore Jesus. Now, there could have been a connection between John the Baptist and the Essenes. There are many parallels. But as far as the specific question of Messianic views, the idea that Jesus gets his Messianic views from the Essenes, I don't think, gets to first base. Why? Because the Essenes expected a Messiah who would lead an army, would do combat with with the Roman Empire, defeat the Roman army, and kill 
the Roman emperor. And we find that quite explicit in several scrolls, the war scrolls, uh, one in particular that mentions the Messiah who kills the king of the Katim, and that's the Roman emperor. Uh, Jesus doesn't teach that. This is not his messianic view. Nowhere in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, is, is there the expectation that a Messiah will come who will suffer for his people or talk about carrying a cross, uh, nothing like that, or turning another cheek or dying for his people. There's nothing like that in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Jesus did not get that idea from the scrolls. Jesus gets the idea from who he is and, of course, the suffering servant passage in Isaiah these are these are the uh, ideas that shape his thinking and lie behind his teaching. We still have time to respond to your phone calls, your email, or your tweets. Our call in number one eight seven seven six two three six nine four three eight seven seven six two three my i e. You can email questions or comments to us right here in the studio. We're coming to you live this Thursday afternoon, the seventeenth of September. Talk back at issuesetc.org. Talk back at issuesetc.org, or if you're following us at Twitter, our address at issuesetc. Very simple, at issuesetc. When we come back, there's a method of scholarship, and it's sad to say this has become very popular, where in essence, Jesus is cherry-picked. Or, I guess you could say, literally taken apart and reconstructed, deconstructed. Now, I'm not talking about some sort of postmodern scholarship. I'm talking about old-school liberal scholarship that says, look, here are some sayings of Jesus. And ignoring the context of those sayings, ignoring the narrative around them, ignoring other sayings that will be cheek and jowl with them, they say, ah, here is Jesus sounding like, for instance, a cynic. Here is Jesus sounding like uh, some other school of philosophy. And they cobble together a picture of Jesus that, in the end, even though it does nothing but quote directly from Jesus himself, they cobble together a picture of Jesus that looks nothing like the one presented in the whole warp and woof of the New Testament Gospels. We'll talk about that method of scholarship and how we should evaluate it with Dr. Craig Evans after this. Are you looking for a church where you can receive the gifts of God in the gospel and the sacraments and in the church's historic worship with lively music? Then come to Hope Lutheran Church in South St. Louis. We're located on the corner of Brannon and Neosho Streets at 5218 Neosho. You can also reach us on the World Wide Web at www.hopelutheranstl.org and give us a call at 314-352-0014. There is hope in St. Louis. This is a message for members of Thrivent Financial for Lutherans. Thrivent Financial will match 50 cents on each dollar you donate to Lutheran Public Radio up to $300. So, if you donate $300 to Lutheran Public Radio, Thrivent will send us an additional check for $150. For more information, look for the Thrivent Giving Plus gift form under the donate page of our website, issuesetc.org. Make your gift to us go further with Thrivent Giving Plus. The sharpest arrow in your apologetics quiver. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
When you hear the words new music for your congregation, do you automatically think of mindless praise music? Well, think again. Liturgy Solutions has new compositions for all seasons of the church year that are firmly grounded in the Reformation truths of Christ for us in word and sacrament. Check us out on the web at www.liturgysolutions.com. At Liturgy Solutions, we don't do worship. We're deep into liturgy. www.liturgysolutions.com. Here's a great resource for Sunday school teachers. Every Tuesday, we interview Deaconess Pam Nielsen of Concordia Publishing House about the upcoming Growing in Christ Sunday School lesson. You'll find these interviews under the on-demand page of our website, issuesetc.org. Listen to a 20-minute interview with Pam Nielsen, and you'll be prepared to teach Sunday school this weekend. Issuesetc.org. Click on demand and look for Teaching a Sunday School Lesson with Deaconess Pam Nielsen. Issues Etc. online at issuesetc.org. In our culture, we have a three-headed monster, what I call the unholy trinity. Pluralism, relativism, and universalism. I've heard some folks tell me that making the sign of the cross isn't Lutheran. All of these catechisms say to pray this way, make the sign of the cross and say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't get any more Lutheran than the scriptures and your catechism. When you think that your experience of the divine somehow is on par with Scripture, then at that point, whether you admit it or not, you've made yourself into a prophet. If you just said, go make disciples and do whatever it takes to get him in the door, if Jesus had just said, go make disciples and use any means you want, but he didn't. He went on and said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. Just some snippets of our four candidates for issues, etc. Soundbite of the week. We'll play Soundbite of the week with you tomorrow on issues, etc. We're talking about liberal Bible scholarship how it distorts the Gospels, and we're talking about the world in which Jesus lived. Dr. Craig Evans is our guest. He's professor of New Testament at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. He's author of several books, including Fabricating Jesus. You can purchase this book at our website using the Amazon.com link, issuesetc.org. Click on Demand, and you'll find Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Bible Scholars Distort the Gospels by Dr. Craig Evans. And when you purchase this book using that Amazon.com link at our website, a a percentage of your purchase will help support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. Dr. Evans, let's talk about this method of scholarship that you address in the middle of your book. Uh, You say it's essentially kind of ripping Jesus out of context. Maxims without context is what you call it. How does it work, and how do you evaluate it? Well, scholars focus oftentimes on the sayings of Jesus. And, uh, and what they do is they assume that because we often don't know the specific context of these sayings, like we, we don't know, for example, Jesus said that on a Tuesday, and we don't know the precise order in which the things were said, we don't know the geographic location, I mean, which village was he in anyway when he said this, that some scholars, in my view, take great liberties because of a lack of specific context they uh, carry on as if there really isn't any context, and that's the problem. We do know some general things about context, and the danger of taking it out of whatever context we have, then the saying begins to lose its meaning, and scholars, especially of a postmodern frame of mind, will think, well, 
you know, we don't really know what it originally meant. We don't know what the context was. And so they might engage in some kind of rhetorical or reader response interpretation and begin to invest the same with whatever seems to work right now. And I find that very circular and very subjective. But sometimes the Gospels, in fact, do provide us with specific context. We're told Jesus is in Jerusalem. We're told he's asked by a ruling priest or by a Sadducee a certain question, that uh, the crowd is in the temple precincts listening to him. He tells a parable like the parable about the vineyard and uh, in a certain place. Very weak, we know, when he told it. And scholars then ignore that, too, and then say, well, we really don't know what the parable meant when it was originally spoken, and so they then invest it with speculative meanings, contradictory meanings, and so on. And I find that almost a form of anarchy. It's a lawlessness in interpretation, and I think it uh, inevitably leads to a distorted picture of Jesus. Isn't it uh, also, I mean, this seems to be its biggest fault. It ignores the genre of the Gospels, namely that these are carefully crafted narratives put together deliberately, not just a bunch of hodgepodge of remembered sayings tossed together and then kind of, you know, sewn together with a few traveling, uh, uh, traveling songs or something like that. The authors have an intent when they put these things in the context they do. Of course they do, uh, and the Gospels are carefully constructed. And uh, I, I think, you know, if I have to choose between a first-century author who is writing within one generation of, of Jesus's activities, who has the support of dozens, if not hundreds, of other eyewitnesses, who heard him, saw him, and so forth, if I have to choose between that first century author who says, this is what he meant when he said it, or this is where he was when he said it or did it, uh, choose either that person or a 20th or 21st century scholar who says, let's just ignore the context and let me guess what it might have meant. Well, I'll tell you, I'll choose the first century author any day. I just find it a strange way of proceeding to, uh, you know, if you don't have a context, okay, fine, you don't have a context. But when you do, and sometimes you do, you always do generally, and sometimes you do specifically, to ignore those contexts and just start imagining what it might have meant or take it out of Israel out of the first century and imagine a completely foreign context, I just find that a very strange way of working. Okay. Is this also a good way to distinguish between something we talked about before, and that was um, these canonical Gospels and the pretenders to the canon in terms of Gospels? Most of those, if, you, if, you, if I've looked at them, they are just collections of sayings. They are just proverbial kind of catalogs of Jesus' random thoughts. They often are, that's true. The Gospel of Thomas is a good example of that. But see, when Thomas is written, uh, the first century Palestinian Jewish context is of no interest to that author. He, he understands Jesus very much the way a second century philosopher in Syria would want to understand him, and that is a philosopher who has a series of maxims, a series of sayings. And that was popular, that was a popular genre in that part of the world back then. Collections of wise sayings, almost like a book of Proverbs. Well, that's, that's not, that doesn't take us to the first century Jesus. That is not how he taught. 
and uh, the first century Gospels understand much better how Jesus taught, what he said, and, and what he said, what it meant, and have a truer understanding of the context in which Jesus said it. So again, I'm perplexed by some scholars. Fortunately, they're a minority, but they often get a lot of media attention. I'm perplexed why they would prefer Gospels uh, that do not reflect first century realities uh, over Gospels that do. I find that very strange. Are you are you as concerned, and I am, that uh, not liberal Bible scholarship, but let's just call it shallow Bible scholarship, would also, even in a kind of a Bible-believing evangelical context, uh, elight these things from the context and, and kind of teach the sayings and moral teachings of Jesus apart from their place in the greater gospel where they're found? Well, that's a very good point. Uh, And you don't have to be a, quote, liberal scholar to take something out of context. I'm afraid conservative, uh, Bible-believing Christians, evangelicals, fundamentalists, whatever you want to say, do that all the time. They haven't done their homework very well, and uh, they they treat uh, the Gospels and the sayings of Jesus as if it is just a jumbled collection of Proverbs or something. And uh, a verse here and a verse there can be taken out of context, and uh, the meaning is missed. Dr. Evans, we'll conclude our series with you on how modern scholars distort the Gospels next Thursday with a discussion about what did Jesus do with only about 30 seconds. What's on tap for next week? Well, we, you know, at the end of the day, we need to ask the question, well, okay, what did Jesus do? We've been talking about what he taught. We need also to ask, well, what did he do? What really happened, and why is that significant? If he's just a philosopher who happened to run afoul of the authorities and was put to death, gee, that's kind of a too-bad story. Isn't Jesus more than that? That's the question. What did he do? What did he accomplish? Dr. Craig Evans is professor of New Testament at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, and he's author of several books, including Fabricating Jesus. Thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll play Issues Etc. Soundbite of the Week with you. Honesty, that's all we're really talking about here, an honest look at these New Testament documents, the Gospels, as they present themselves to us, not as we want to anachronistically read our modern context, ideas, pet subjects back into them. That is twisting Scripture. No matter how you do it, that's twisting Scripture. Let them speak. Let the text speak. It's a simple principle, not only good for Bible reading, but for any kind of study that you might do, but especially for the Bible. Let the text speak. So it presents to us a plausible picture of first century world with, occupied by this man, Jesus Christ, who also claims and is believed by his followers to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Let's be honest. Let's take it seriously. Let's treat these as credible sources and then say, who is this man, Jesus? Is he, in fact, also the Son of God? He claimed to be. Is he, in fact, also, and we'll get to this next time, with Dr. Evans, is he also the one who said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'll be handed over, tried, suffer, killed, and on the third day, I will rise from the dead. Did that really happen? What we find there in the pages of those Gospels is the real Jesus, and the real Jesus is a real Savior. 
what he did, what he taught, who he is, not only was, but who he is, risen from the dead, is our only salvation. Rooted there in history, delivered to us in these credible documents we call the Gospels, presented to us so that we might believe, and as John, one of those authors says, believing, have real life in his name. I'm Todd Wilkin. Talk with you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Lutheran Public Radio, P.O. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.